You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Dr. Joyce uh, Mujhaban. She received her PhD from Indiana University just a couple of years ago um, and recently retired as the Curator's Distinguished Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. But now you're working at Georgetown University and you've done a lot of work around women and gender studies. So I'm really looking forward to this um, discussion, Joyce, um, otherwise known as Dr. J. Um, as you'll see in Joyce's bio, and you've got a lot of um, different experiences. And as you mentioned, um, you have spent a lot of time in Germany and, and um, uh, two months generally each summer for the past um, 18 years. So it's a really, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you as part of our program today. So the floor is yours. All right. Even though we're about to commemorate 100 years of women's suffrage in the United States, as well as the 25th anniversary of the United Nations Beijing Conference on Women, as of this year, only about 5% of the heads of government around the world are female. In September 1995, the Beijing Platform for Action identified 12 critical areas of concern that are of direct relevance for the rights and well-being of women. But we don't have to, a lot to show for all the preaching that is done about equal rights that we hear from politicians, especially around Mother's Day. Although 188 countries have ratified the 1979 Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the United States is the only industrial democracy that refuses to sign on to it, putting on a, us on par with the Sudan and Somalia. As of May 2020, only 19 out of 193 countries had a female head of state or government. Only 14 of 193 cabinets contained at least 50% women, and only four, yes, four of 193 countries boasted of at least 50% women in their national parliaments. In fact, there's only one state in the US, that's Nevada, that has now reached 50-50. Yet curiously, women leaders extending from Denmark to Taiwan and stretching from Germany to New Zealand have done a far better job in containing the corona pandemic and in saving their countries from total economic collapse. Now, there are, of course, a few male leaders who deserve some honorable mention for their initial management of the crisis, but given the very small numbers of women, it's striking that none of the female-headed nations have experienced the appalling death rates witnessed in China, Italy, the United States, and Brazil, for example. Now, one of the lessons I learned as a founding mother and former director of women and gender studies at the University of Missouri in St. Louis is that once you start looking for the gender dimensions, you tend to find them under every rock, no matter what the law, no matter what 
policy. At this point, I'm going to click it on to my PowerPoint and I want you to realize that the corona pandemic is certainly no exception with regard to that particular gender rule. Let's go here, share. Okay, are we seeing something pretty that I looked up online because purple's my favorite color? Okay. So now let me uh, proceed. Uh, the, the corona pandemic, as I noted, is not an exception to the rule with regard to gender dimensions. And I could really give two different talks today, one focusing on the impact of corona on women as essential workers, as low paid uh, workers in many of the service industries, grocery store clerks, restaurants, hotel, hospitality, homemaking or homekeeping for a lot of these places. But that would take another three hours and I'm working on a project with a European Union think tank on that particular document. Instead, I'm just gonna concentrate on women as leaders and offer a few of the reasons why I think they're doing a better job of managing the COVID-19 crisis. First, I'll address two leadership models that I find useful in distinguishing among the differences between women and men when it comes to questions of both leadership style and policy substance. Then I offer a few concrete examples based on my own European experiences and research. Now, we need not dwell for long on many of the traits that are stereotypically ascribed to each sex across national boundaries. Women are labeled attractive or not, cooperative, demure, emotional, gentle, helpful, you'll notice these are in alphabetical order, kind, nurturing, peace-loving, quiet, relationship-oriented, risk-averse, sensitive, subordinate, sympathetic, and warm. Men are purportedly aggressive, ambitious, competitive, controlling, daring, dominant, forceful, independent, loud, rational, rule-oriented, self-confident, visionary, and inclined towards war-mongering. The problem is that these kinds of personal traits focus our attention more on style than on substance in determining whether or not women and men lead differently. The global nature of the COVID-19 pandemic has proven that top-ranking officials cannot just holler, do this, do that, justified in terms of, because I said so, nor can they simply, simply send out tweets and declare you're fired whenever their negotiating partners pursue diverging national interest, especially in the EU context, which requires agreement and consensus among 27 different member states, as you no doubt already heard. The leadership literature offers two types, ideal types, we call them, that align with traits and behaviors typically ascribed to women or men, although both concentrate, again, more on behavior than on policy outcomes. The male norm version, transactional leadership, foresees a manager who commands behavioral compliance from employees, relying heavily on organizational rewards and punishments to influence employee performance. The general style is one of command and control. It relies on hierarchical structures, organizational loyalty, sometimes personal loyalty, narrow objectives, 
and clear lines of authority, and those clear lines are supposed to suggest accountability. Now, most business studies suggest that male managers pay close attention to employees' mistakes, but they evince, evince little concern for circumstances or workplace conditions, things like sexual harassment, that might hinder their effective performance. Scholars also ascribe a kind of hands-off approach to such transactional leaders, at least until a crisis requires a form of heroic, personalized, let's get to it, decision-making. The transactional type was popularized in the American context by Robert Dahl, who characterized this form of leadership as A's job to make B do what she or he would ordinarily not do. Now, transformational leadership is generally ascribed to women. This model kicks in when the leader stimulates the interest among colleagues and followers to view their work from a new perspective. A transformational leader generates an awareness of the mission or the vision of the institution and urges colleagues to realize their own potential and contributions while looking beyond their own motives towards interest that will benefit the group. Instead of dividing people into superiors and subordinates, this leader cultivates stakeholders by displaying empathy and fostering participation, trying to garner trust and respect. Commands are replaced usually by forms of teamwork, and there's a lot of plain speaking going on. Control yields to partnership, and authority is not defined in terms of rung on a power ladder, but rather is replaced with shared principles and pragmatic expertise. U.S. community expert Mary Parker Follett developed a model along these lines back in the early 1900s. Leadership, Parker Follett wrote, is not defined by the exercise of power, but by the capacity to increase the sense of power among those who are led. The most essential work of the leader is indeed to create more leaders. Now this leads us to a third concept that is more often related to transformational than to transactional leadership. And this is the concept of emotional intelligence. The ability to monitor one's own feelings and the feelings of others, and to use this kind of information to guide, one, to guide one's actions. Now, this doesn't mean taking everything personally. In fact, it's very far from being touchy-feely, and it re requires self-control, self-confidence, the ability to handle conflict, and showing tolerance for stress. This type of leader empathizes with her constituents, often stressing in her speeches how hard certain decisions have been for her personally. She communicates in terms easily understood by average citizens using everyday metaphors. Angela Merkel used to refer to the Swabian housewife, for example, during the Euro crisis. The soft skills implicit in this model draw on trust, discretion, and respect for all of the individuals involved, and the idea is to foster loyalty and team spirit. It also builds heavily on transparency, and that requires sometimes openly admitting that you've made mistakes 
and that there were important lessons to be learned. Now, let me turn a little bit to some of the leaders I will be looking at individually here. The first thing that we'll notice is that some of these women appear to be quite young. In fact, uh, Sana Martin in Finland was the, is the youngest world leader, period. And the uh, head of uh, Karin Jakobsdottir was also in New Zealand, uh, Jacinda Ardern. These are women who are in their early 30s. The Germany, of course, is being led by Angela Merkel. And one of the things we can say about many of these women is that they also have a significant proportion of women in their cabinets. Let me start with Denmark, Meta Fridriksson. She was among the first to completely shut down her national borders on March 13th, and then moved to close down the kindergartens, the schools, and the universities as well as to ban gatherings of more than 10 people at a time a few days later. This is already on March 13th. The decisiveness spared Denmark the worst of the pandemic, which has seen fewer than 8,000 confirmed cases and about 370 deaths. Now, Friedrichsen's no-nonsense instructions and direct speeches to the nation have been widely praised. She displayed her human side by posting a clip of herself doing the dishes on Facebook while singing along to a 1980s Danish pop star Dodo and the Dodos concert during the national weekly TV lockdown sing-alongs she has staged. Her approval ratings have doubled to more than 80%. Denmark already began opening its schools on May 18th with small groups of children, 10 to 12 each, each of which has one teacher. They spend the entire day together, including recess. There was a lot of outdoor teaching as much as possible and lucky for Denmark, it was pretty warm this spring. Hand washing takes place every 90 minutes. The process has involved intense cooperation and repeated discussions among local health authorities, teachers, unions, and parents. Then we can turn to New Zealand. Now, I realize that's not part of Europe, but Jacinda Ardern has played a really significant role in shutting down the corona spread in that country. She chose to go very hard, very early. She imposed a 14-day quarantine on everyone entering the country as of March 14th, and then implemented a strict countrywide lockdown two weeks later. She has also delivered many empathetic stay at home and save lives video messages from the couch in her living room. In April, she declared that both the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairies were essential workers. She proposed that children draw and prop up big pictures of Easter eggs in the front windows so that other parents could walk around or drive their children around to hunt for those eggs, knowing that the real Easter bunny would be busy taking care of her own children and might not make it to all of the homes in April. Now, other people in that country have staged teddy bear and stuffed animal hunts along the same lines putting them in windows and trees and parked cars and porches because they know that children are really itching to get outside and to play. And so they're trying to find opportunities 
to allow them to get outdoors, but stay at safe distances. Our down has communicated daily through very non-combative press conferences, and she too uses homey Facebook videos. Her insistence on saving lives as the primary responsibility of the country, and her highly personal style and kindness first approach has urged all New Zealanders to look after their neighbors, to take care of the vulnerable, and to help them all make sacrifices for the greater good, all of which have won her many fans. Her emphasis on shared responsibility has kept the country united. Ruling an island state has obviously provided her with a distinctive advantage, but this country also implemented widespread testing from day one. 150 people have been infected, resulting in only 18 deaths. Public trust in Ardern's government is greater than 80%. Now, there has been a slight resurgence and they have yet to identify the cause, three more cases, but you can imagine there's going to be another shutdown and that the New Zealanders will tighten their belts one more time just to get through this. In fact, Arden, who's ruling a coalition with four women-headed parties, has postponed elections, you can do that in a parliamentary system, by one month, and people are expecting her this time around to win an absolute majority. I now turn to the person I know the most about, Chancellor Angela Merkel, having written a whole book on the first 12 years of her policy uh, and, and chancellorship in Germany. Now Merkel was already a person known for her very calm, careful demeanor that took Germany and most of Europe, we have to say, through the Euro crisis, the response to the Fukushima meltdown, as well as the 2015 refugee crisis. People in Germany used to refer to her as the Sphinx, they call her poker face, and it used to be intended as an insult, but now people have appreciated it a lot more. She speaks in very simple language without political spin. She has also been hailed for her very direct but uncharacteristically personal public interventions, warning that up to 70% of the Germans could contract the virus back in March. She called this the country's greatest challenge since 1945 and has personally, in public, lamented every death as that of a father, a grandfather, a mother, a grandmother, a partner, or a child. She also was able to use her healthcare system to implement early and widespread testing from the start the country had sufficient national reserves of masks and protective clothing items. It had a sufficient supply of intensive care beds. And the chancellor has, again, come out periodically to remind everybody in Germany that they must take this oh so seriously. Now, there's a great video I can share with you later. I don't want to slow us down too much today that explained in about two minutes her logic in developing both a lockdown and an exit strategy 
that has been shared hundreds of thousands of times online. It has also caused her public approval ratings to soar once again to over 70%. Now, Germany is a federal system, but in contrast to the United States, state leaders, or they're called the lender, uh, the minister presidents of the lender, have a lot more power, even at the federal level. They participate directly in national policy making through the second chamber known as the Bundeskot. Now, after two months of this, the mostly male leaders of those 16 states were itching to reopen and travel obsessed Germans began insisting on their rights to go abroad on vacations. The minister presidents began reasserting their authority. They do control the schools completely, for example, because some of them are mindful of state elections that are likely to take place over the next two years. Now this has triggered a second wave of German illnesses in recent months. Tests are now being offered absolutely free at airports, train stations, and the borders for everybody coming back from a vacation overseas. The problem with the testing, for example, in Bavaria, is that the labs are now a bit overwhelmed and the notification has been very slow. We know it does you no good to find out six or seven days later that you have the disease because by then you could have infected many more people. A second problem area in Germany has proved to be, as here, the large meat packing plants and agricultural operations, which conservatives have been refusing to regulate for decades. The dirtiest, the most dangerous, and the most difficult work, like the United States, is being carried out by cheap sub-subcontracted foreign workers, in this case, largely Romanians who are living in abysmal conditions in cramped camps and dormitories. Now, in addition to shutting down the whole town of Gutoslow, once there was an outbreak in the plant there, the Merkel government passed immediate legislation that now requires these big meat and sausage producers to hire regular workers at German wage levels, giving them health insurance and other benefits. So it's the end of sub-subcontracting in some of these industries that have proven to be highly contagious. Berlin is also a bit problematic right now because it's a tourist, uh, tourist magnet and it particularly attracts young people who like to go to all of its really funky bars. Having lived in Berlin for about 18 years, I can tell you some of those bars are pretty funky. Berlin has had about 9,976 cases over the last four months, but that has resulted in 224 deaths. Now, Germany, keep in mind, has a population of some 83 million, and yet the death toll in Germany has only been about 1.6% compared to the Italian fatality rate of 12%, Spain, France, and Britain are running about 10%. And Merkel was very busy conducting online summit, uh, summits with state leaders, and that includes state health ministers, while Trump was still declaring Corona a democratic hoax, tweeting about his TV ratings, and even suggesting that we in, 
inject ourselves with household disinfectants. As one expert overseas noted, if you're asking why death rates are so low in Germany and so high in America, it's because our leader used to be a quantum chemistry physicist and your president was a reality TV show host. For the record, Merkel, Arden, Arden, and others have also directly subsidized wages in their countries to avoid another crisis of mass unemployment given their experiences with the Euro crisis, 2008, 2009, running through about 2010. Rather than waiting for their workers to be fired and then trying to track them down all over the country to mail them personal checks after the fact, they're using already established pay policies, subsidizing the companies to keep their workers on board. Now this helps to maintain trust in the economy, in the banks, as well as in government institutions, and it also helps to maintain steady levels of consumption, and it means that German firms, which are heavily dependent on skilled labor, won't have to chase around once the economy begins to recover to try to bring these workers back. We can then turn very briefly to Erna Zolberg in Norway. She told CNN at the very beginning that she made a point of letting the scientists make the really big medical decisions. She insisted also that her country engage in an early lockdown and thorough testing was the key. Following an example set by Fredrickson, Solberg also took the unusual step of directly addressing the country's children, telling them in two children's press conferences that it was okay to be a little bit scared. In fact, adult journalists were banned from that press conference, those press conferences, that she too missed being able to hug her friends. Norway shut down its schools on March 12th and was one of the first countries to reopen them on April 20th. It started with nurseries and kindergartens and moved gradually up the age ladder. So far, so good. Norway had confirmed 8,106 cases of COVID-19 the last time I checked, resulting in 224 deaths. This is a country of 5.4 million people. Compared to Norway's 8,000, roughly 8,000 cases, the state of Missouri had 70,040 confirmed cases. Instead of 224 deaths, the state of Missouri, where I used to teach, had 1,472 deaths, and its population is about 5.5 million. So that's quite a distortion, uh, a disproportionate number of illnesses and deaths compared with Norway. Then there's Katrin Jakobsdottir in Iceland, who also offered free testing to all of her citizens, not just those who happen to have symptoms. Some 12% of the population took advantage of the offer. The country has an elaborate tracing system that has allowed it to keep its schools open. Finland has Sama Marin, the world's youngest head of government. She also moved very rapidly to impose a strict lockdown 
including a ban on all non-essential travel in and out of the Helsinki region. This has helped her country contain the spread of virus to just 4,000 cases and 140 deaths. That's 10 times lower than Sweden, which decided right next door not to shut down. Well, let's switch to the European level and what you can see here, unfortunately, I've got all of our pictures on the left side, so I don't know if you're seeing the full PowerPoint picture. Are you seeing all these country counts over there? Okay, that's wonderful. Well, the thing you need to look at is you see those really high peaks in a country like Germany and Denmark, and then suddenly you see a dramatic plunge in the actual number of cases as compared to Poland, which has a right-wing populist government where it's still going up, uh, Spain plunging, but then rising again as soon as they attempted to open, Sweden, which did not shut down. And so if we just look at these graphs, we get a striking picture that somehow the countries that are being run by women are not reaching the same dramatic peak again, even if there is a kind of a secondary wave. Um, another element we want to bring in are the per capita death rates. This is the number of deaths per 100,000 citizens. And again, if we look to the countries such as, let's see, let's go down to, there's Germany, a very low rate in terms of the absolute mortality here. Denmark also much lower. So most of these countries are falling beneath the median point of deaths in these countries. And then we have the, the question of new cases that are arising. And what you see here is that the overwhelming majority of new cases are right here in the United States, which has done so little to really take a national stance or even allow the states to conduct very rigorous shutdown, close down policies. So these are just, I think, some of the factual indicators that these women-run country are performing much better. Now, we also have, uh, I, I, again, I spend a lot of time thinking and researching uh, about Merkel and her performance. And so I think it's quite striking that even in four different European countries, people seem to have a whole lot more trust in Angela Merkel's ability to manage this particular crisis, as well as confidence in their local governments as compared to the workings of Emmanuel Macron in France or individual male leaders in other parts of Europe. And of course, Boris Johnson is way down there and the US government ranks even more poorly along with Donald Trump in the eyes of Europeans with respect to overall management of the crisis. Now let me turn quickly to Ursula von der Leyen who is a medical doctor herself by training. And on top of that, she is the mother of seven children. She looks great. Seven children, she is still weighing in at 49 kilos. That's less than 110 pounds, despite all of the fancy state dinners and lunches. I keep telling my colleagues over there, we all wanna know what she's eating for breakfast, given the high energy levels and the many jobs she has held. Well, the first thing that Ursula von der Leyen did as the first female president of the European Commission was to launch a brand new, incredibly comprehensive 
five-year gender equality strategy that will run through 2024. She also appointed the very first commissioner for equality, Helena Dali. When Corona struck, von der Leyen, who has a master's degree in public health from Stanford, as well as her degree as a medical doctor, immediately recognized its epidemic potential. This led her to convene an international, well, I'll come back to that, sorry, I missed that, to convene an international summit to jumpstart an unprecedented degree of global scientific collaboration. Some 30 countries, UN organs, philanthropic bodies, and research institutes have all signed on, pledging the equivalent of $8 billion to support the accelerated development, a cooperative development of a coronavirus vaccine, as well as to conduct collaborative, cooperative research into the diagnosing and the treatment of the disease. Now, she has even managed to solicit money or donations from people as unrelated to the medical field as pop star Madonna. Other global stars have signed on. Chris Rock, Coldplay, Dionne Warwick, that's a name from my past, Femi Kuti, Hugh Jackman, Justin Bieber, Lady Gaga, Lang Lang, whoever that is, Miley Cyrus, Padma Lakshmi, Rachel Brosnick, and Shakira, and of course, the usual Seattle suspects, Bill and Melinda Gates. All of them have not only contributed money, but are gonna do their best to help educate younger people about the real dangers of this virus. So it will have the vaccine development, the therapeutics, and the diagnostic partnerships. The EU Commission itself put $1 billion into it. It's been matched by Norway, which is a small country of only 5.4 million people. Japan has put in about $800 million. France, Germany, and even Saudi Arabia promised $500 million. The US and Russia did not take part. China at least sent its ambassador to immediately share all the COVID-19 DNA evidence that had been collected after the Wuhan outbreak. Boris Johnson, who spent three nights in intensive care for COVID-19, pledged 338 million pounds. Now it's rather striking that the two men who are most obsessed with making their countries great again, Donald Trump, and Vladimir Putin did not participate. In fact, Trump immediately turned around and tried to buy up exclusive US rights to any vaccine that might be produced by two European firms. This caused even more outrage over his perceived selfish nationalistic approach to what is clearly a global pandemic. Europeans immediately agreed to share any vaccine any one of them can, can come up with and test effectively and to reproduce it and share it at best at cost with the rest of the world. Now, while Merkel was quarantined at home in February, von der Leyen, the only German to have served in all four Merkel cabinets, pursued daily phone conversations with Merkel and Macron 
in an effort to win their support for a new EU budget. It's known as a complicated multi-annual financial framework pattern. She came up with a breakthrough financing concept and presented it in a six-hour video conference as early as March 26. She then held personal talks with 20 national leaders all in a single weekend, see that energy thing kicking in there, to register all of their competing and conflicting interests. With Merkel Macron on board, the strongest resistance came from the so-called frugal four, or they're less charitably known as the stingy four, the Netherlands, Sweden, Denmark, and Austria. Now, the right-wing populist men ruling Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia are largely afraid that they could lose big sums of money that they've been receiving from agricultural subsidies and EU structural funds. But von der Leyen's made it clear that they will not be affecting the structural fund money. Her 750 billion euro recovery package has two key components. There will be loans extended to some of these countries, which they will largely have to pay back. And there will also be project-related grants, investing, for example, in new Green Deal technologies. The idea here is that you're going to have to jumpstart, kickstart the whole economy in most of these countries. You can't just send personal unemployment checks. You're going to have to start right away with major job creation programs. So let me come to my conclusions. Correlation is obviously not causation. Being a woman doesn't automatically make you better at managing a global pandemic, nor does appearing innately more compassionate and cooperative. During the early stages, the median per capita death rate in these women-led countries did not differ statistically from the median mortality rate in male-led states, although all of these rates are highly dependent on population density, healthcare access, testing, tracking, and reporting. But what we obviously need now are leaders who listen to medical experts and base their policies on hard scientific evidence, not on popularity polls. Women leaders have admitted to their own personal vulnerability and fears and their citizens' fears concerning this virus. They have asked for expert scientific advice in the beginning to deal with the uncertainty of the situation. Experimental studies have shown that male leaders who ask for help are perceived, largely by other men, as being less competent than those who don't ask for assistance. In short, women listen and they don't try to protect their own egos by refusing to ask for directions. If you've ever gone on a road trip with your husband, you know what I'm talking about. Chancellor Merkel was praised for her decision to self-isolate after her doctor contracted COVID-19 while he was prior to his giving her a pneumococcal vaccination. I can tell you, I'm two years older than Angela Merkel, and as soon as I heard she had that vaccination, I got in my car and I drove to Target and I got myself one of those, even though I hate shots. 
Boris Johnson, at the same time, was out there shaking hands with everybody, thinking he couldn't get it. And then it came to number 10 Downing Street, and he spent four days in the ICU unit after exposing his pregnant girlfriend to the disease as well. All of these other female leaders, as I pointed out, have tried to be personal and sympathetic and empathetic in their messages to their citizens. Can you imagine a Trump or a Putin or an Erdogan or an Orban declaring the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny essential workers? Male leaders with an authoritarian streak are inclined to display what we call toxic masculinity. Brazilian leader Bolsonaro, for example, keeps on attending large rallies and denying the severity of the virus that has killed hundreds of thousands of workers in his country. Trump has also, for the most part, refused to wear a mask. All right, I can't change their behavior, but I can say that the women leaders to whom I have been exposed are very well poised to handle the current pandemic, not only because of their sex, but also due to the states, the kinds of states that they lead. Female heads of government are rarely the only women in their countries to have obtained positions of power. It's just the tip of the iceberg of many deeper changes that are occurring across our governing structures. While women make up more than half of the world's population, only 25% of the women in legislatures worldwide are women. In contrast, the countries now led by women, this figure rises to 36% on average. It's still not equal representation, but it's a lot closer to parity, 50-50, than we can expect to see in this country for a long time. In half of the countries that are ruled by these women, 40% or more of the legislative seats are filled by women. Toxic masculinity is less likely to thrive in places like that than we are to see, than we will see among Republicans, for example, in the US Congress, where men still comprise over 90% of the Senate. While women are represented in government, Political science research finds significant differences in public policy, in the ability of a state in a larger sense to respond to healthcare issues, to educational issues. More as more women enter national legislatures, these countries are changing their policies. And I could speak for two hours on some of the gender policies that Angela Merkel herself has introduced. The bottom line is that women generally have to be twice as good in order to become leaders. We are always held to higher standards than men. We are rarely able to fail the way men can. We have to be twice as good just to prove we are the same, if not equal, and to be taken seriously. With a few notable exceptions, you really have to be overqualified to reach the top. Unless, of course, you have a $50 million trust fund and a father who provides you with a rent-free office in the White House. If the corona pandemic has taught us anything, it is perhaps that we need to elect a lot more women to clean up the global messes that men have been creating for centuries.
thank you for your attention.